welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Thank you, as always, for listening. In this next series of episodes, we will be discussing the Ukrainian War of Independence. I understand that this might come as a bit of a surprise to listeners, seeing as how I previously said that the next series would be on the Congo Free State. Rest assured that a series on that subject will be forthcoming. However, with Ukraine being in the news so much recently, I figured I'd take it upon myself to shed some light on this topic while it's still relevant. So, here we are. Before we begin, I'd like to quickly remind you that if you like this show and would like to see it continue, the best way to do so is through the show's Patreon page, a link to which can be found in this episode's description. Anyway, without further ado, let's begin. The term Ukrainian War of Independence is itself a bit misleading. The conflict which occurred in and around the territory of modern Ukraine between the years 1917 and 1921 involved a vast array of different factions, communist Russians, communist Ukrainians, anti-communist Russians, the forces of the German and Austro-Hungarian empires, the forces of Russia's wartime allies, the Entente, the forces of the Second Polish Republic, and of course, the Ukrainians themselves, Ukrainians of all different political affiliations, socialists, monarchists, republicans, anarchists, and so on and so forth. Suffice it to say that this conflict was a massively complex one, which warrants close analysis. As historian John Reshetar posited in his seminal study of Ukraine, these events were an integral component to the wider conflict which emerged in the former Russian Empire following the collapse of the monarchy, yet they are all too often ignored by those who study the period. Over the course of this series, I hope to shed some light on this neglected area of history. At the turn of the 19th century, there was not such a thing as Ukraine. That the region which comprises the modern country of Ukraine has a long history is a fact roundly acknowledged by scholars. What is a controversial matter, on the other hand, is the question of how far back in history one can point to the origin of modern Ukraine. There are three specific periods within the past millennium that historians cite as antecedents of the Ukrainian nation, and whichever answer one receives will largely depend on who is asked. Perhaps the most prominent of the three, at least in the popular imagination, is the period of quasi-independence that the region enjoyed in the 17th century, when the Zaporizhian Cossack host struggled against their more powerful neighbors, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Crimean Khanate, and the Tsardom of Russia, to maintain their political liberties. The most ardent Ukrainian nationalists have a tendency to look back even further to the period of Kievan Rus. The Kievan Rus was a loose confederation of independent Eastern Slavic monarchies, which existed from the time that it was founded in the 9th century, until the region was subjugated by the Mongols in the 1240s. It would be most appropriate, however, to place the origins of modern Ukraine firmly within the modern period, specifically in the 19th century, which was a century that saw many significant developments in the Ukrainian language and culture. Despite the wide ethno-linguistic diversity of the region, historians have generally been able to divide the development of nationalism in Eastern Europe into three distinct phases, the first of these is the so-called academic phase, in which a small group of intellectuals takes up an interest in the language, culture, and history of a certain ethnic group, and works to define it as a separate entity. If this model can be considered to be accurate, and for the purposes of this podcast, I will assume it to be, then the genesis of the Ukrainian national movement can be dated very precisely to the year 1798, with the publication of the first literary work in the vernacular Ukrainian language. Before we get to that, however, allow me to first set the geopolitical stage. On the eve of the 19th century, the region that is now understood to comprise Ukraine had, up until very recently, been a part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. 
when the Commonwealth was, for reasons that are frankly too complex for me to delve into now, partitioned by rival powers, parts of Ukraine were annexed by both the Russian and Austrian empires. The vast majority of ethnic Ukrainians became subjects of the Russian Tsar, while those residing in the furthermost western regions of the country became subjects of the Austrian Kaiser, as they constituted a plurality in the Austrian crownland of Galicia Lodomeria. No doubt those Ukrainians who found themselves living under the Russian state had the worse end of the deal. Ukraine constituted a special place in the imagination of Russian nationalism. To begin with, Ukrainians and Russians had much in common. Their shared Orthodox Christian faith, both claimed to be inheritors to the legacy of the Kievan Rus, and, furthermore, the Russian and Ukrainian languages are quite similar to one another. So similar, in fact, that there is even to this day a widespread but flawed conception especially among more nationalist-leaning Russians, that Ukrainian is only a quote-unquote peasant dialect of the Russian language. It was in the context of conflict with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for territory comprising modern Ukraine and Belarus that the concept of the all-Russian nation emerged. This conception of Russian identity held that Russia was a tripartite nation, consisting of Great Russians, White Russians, also called Belarusians, and Little Russians, or Ukrainians. This vision of Russian identity, one which encompassed more than just what we would understand to be ethnic Russians, quickly gained traction in the ensuing decades, and would be a key component of the Russian state's official ideology. Given this set of factors, the prospect of the emergence of a separate, distinct Ukrainian identity posed a serious threat to the ideological underpinnings of the Russian state. Therefore, the Russian state went to great lengths to prevent such a thing from happening. Issues of language proved to be particularly contentious. The Russian state suppressed all use of the vernacular Ukrainian language by mandating that all literary publications were to be written in Old Church Slavonic. Even the name of the region itself was a matter of fierce debate. Officially, the region was known as Little Russia, and inhabitants were designated Little Russians. It wasn't until the 1830s that increasingly nationally conscious Little Russians began to use a different term, Ukraine. In most Slavic languages, the term Ukraine translates roughly to borderland frontier region, or something equivalent. This was not a term that the Ukrainian nationalists had made up out of whole cloth, however. The term Ukraine had been used to refer to the region since the 12th century. As I briefly mentioned earlier, the Ukrainian national movement can be understood to have begun around the year 1798, with the publication of the epic poem Enida by Ivan Kotilarevsky. Kotilarevsky's work was a parody of the Aeneid by Roman author Virgil, in which the Trojan protagonists of the original poem are replaced by Zaporizhian Cossacks. Even had it not been for the poem's distinction as being the first major literary work to be published in vernacular Ukrainian, it would be a remarkable work and a landmark in the development of Ukrainian identity regardless. The content of the poem would prove to be just as important as its form. Anita contained many themes which would become central to future developments in the Ukrainian literary canon, many of which can be considered to be rather radical in nature. For instance, throughout the poem, one can identify both reverent nostalgia for the Zaporizhian Cossacks and their traditions of political liberty, and harsh criticism of the great Russian ruling class. Similar themes can be detected in the work of Taras Savchenko. If Kotilarevsky can be considered a figure comparable to Chaucer in terms of his contributions to the development of the Ukrainian language, Taras Shevchenko can be considered as being comparable to Shakespeare. In fact, Sevchenko was often referred to as Kozbar Taras, Kozbar being a Ukrainian term equivalent to the English word bard. 
Shevchenko was born as a serf on March 9, 1814, in a small village some 200 or so miles south of Kiev. At a young age, his master sent him to the imperial Russian capital of St. Petersburg to study drawing. It was due to his remarkable artistic talent that Shevchenko was able to purchase his own freedom from serfdom, and he went on to attend the Imperial Academy of Arts, the most prestigious art academy in the Russian Empire. But it was not for his visual artistry that Shevchenko would win fame. Rather, it was for his literary skills. His first publication was an 1840 collection of poems entitled The Kozbar Player, a quote from author Sergei Yekolchek, quote, Using elements of folk songs, the peasant vernacular, and the bookish language of older writers, Shevchenko molded a new and vital Ukrainian language, equally accessible to intellectuals and peasants alike. End quote. Through his very popular and accessible works, Shevchenko was instrumental not only in the development of the Ukrainian language, but in influencing the Ukrainian people to conceive of themselves not as little Russians, as a constituent people of the all-Russian nation, but rather as Ukrainians, a people who constituted a nation unto themselves. In his works, Shevchenko railed against the Russian oppression of the Ukrainian nation, often finding ways to connect the national and economic nature of said oppression. For instance, more than one of Shevchenko's stories feature a virgin Ukrainian maid being violated by a haughty ethnic Russian nobleman. In the year 1845, after almost half a century of monumental developments in Ukrainian culture, a small group of intellectuals decided that it was finally time to attempt to politicize the Ukrainian national movement. Under the auspices of preeminent historian Nikolai Kostomarov, these intellectuals founded a secret society, which they called the Brotherhood of St. Cyril and Methodius. The Brotherhood had, among various other political goals, the abolition of serfdom and the reorganization of the Russian Empire into a liberalized and federalized democratic republic, of which Ukraine would be a free and equal constituent part. Shevchenko's views were a fair bit more radical than the members of the Brotherhood. He believed that Ukraine should seek its independence and separate from the Russian nation entirely. Although Shevchenko was technically not a member of the Brotherhood, he was among those arrested when the Russian secret police cracked down on the organization and arrested its members in early 1847. Shevchenko's writings had been found among the possessions of those arrested, which was, for the Russian authorities, ample cause to take the bard into custody. Shevchenko was convicted of contemptuously using the Little Russian language, of advocating Little Russian independence, and for slandering the royal family. For this last charge, Tsar Nicholas I personally saw to it that Shevchenko received one of the harshest sentences possible, ten years of military service in a penal battalion in Siberia. In 1857, Shevchenko was officially pardoned by the new emperor, Alexander II, but he was forbidden to return to his native Ukraine. He lived for two years in the Russian town of Nizhny Novgorod, before finally being allowed to return to his native country on account of his failing health. Shevchenko died on March 10, 1861, days after his 47th birthday, no doubt weakened from the decade of deprivation he had suffered while serving his sentence. As you'll recall from earlier, I said at this time Ukraine was split between Russia and Austria. However, thus far, all the events that we've discussed, the publication of Anita, the career of Tsar Shevchenko and the founding and dissolution of the Brotherhood of St. Cyril and Methodius have all occurred in the part of Ukraine which fell under Russian jurisdiction. Events of equal or greater importance to the development of the Ukrainian national movement were occurring in Austrian Galicia, or in what is broadly referred to as Western Ukraine. In general, Russia, which had become a byword in the West for despotism, was considered to be far more autocratic than Austria. In particular, the Austrian Empire underwent a series of liberal reforms under Empress Maria Theresa and Emperor Joseph II, 
whose combined reigns comprised the majority of the latter half of the 18th century. These two enlightened absolutist monarchs, among other reforms, granted rights to the empire's serfs, promoted freedom of religion, and made elementary education compulsory across the empire. These final two reforms in particular did much to advance the cause of the Ukrainian national movement in Galicia, as they, in tandem, molded a new generation of highly educated Ukrainian Greek Catholic priests who, in Galicia, played the role of the intelligentsia in the Ukrainian national renaissance that occurred there. The Austrians, much like the Russians, ruled over a vast empire populated by a complex patchwork of ethnicities and nationalities. Unlike the Russian state, however, the Austrians were all too aware that they could not possibly hope to assimilate these populations into the German high culture of the empire. So, whereas the Russian government of this era generally pursued an official policy of Russification, that is to say a policy whereby the Russian language and culture would replace native languages and cultures, the Austrian government adopted a far more liberal nationality policy. The Austrians, to a large degree, tolerated and even supported efforts by the empire's minority ethnic groups to develop their own unique languages and cultures. The minority nationalities that made up the Austrian empire were allowed to be educated in and publish works in their native languages, and political power was generally devolved into the hands of each group's native clergy and nobility. Of course, it is worth noting that the Austrians were not acting from a purely altruistic rationale here. The top priority for Austrian leadership was securing the loyalty of the nationalities, and it was hoped that such concessions would ensure that, in times of political instability, the nationalities would stand with the Austrian emperor. The loyalty of the Ukrainians was put to the test during the revolutions of 1848, in this time of pan-European revolution, a number of the Austrian Empire's minority nationalities, including the Italians, Hungarians, and Poles, rose up against what they perceived to be a system that did not have the best interests of their nations at heart. The empire was very nearly toppled, but the Ukrainians proved instrumental in helping the Austrians tamp down the rebellious Polish population of Galicia. For their actions on behalf of the emperor in 1848, the Ukrainians won new concessions from the Austrians, including the foundation of a new Institute for the Ruthenian read the Ukrainian language at the University of Lemberg. Meanwhile, in the Russian Empire, the state suppression of the Brotherhood of St. Cyril and Methodius did not, contrary to their expectation, spell the end of the incipient Ukrainian national movement. Shevchenko had become a sort of martyr to the Ukrainian cause, and the Brotherhood had come to be seen by other Ukrainian intellectuals as a model to be emulated. The period of relative liberalization under the new Tsar, Tsar Alexander II, facilitated a resurgence in the Ukrainian national movement. The year 1861 in particular would prove to be a watershed moment for the development of Ukrainian nationalism, because it was in that year that the serfs of Russia were officially emancipated under the orders of Alexander II, thereby earning him the moniker of the Tsar Liberator. It can be somewhat difficult for modern audiences to come to an accurate understanding of the nature of serfdom. For me personally, I tend to think of being a serf as being a degree worse than being a peasant, but a degree better than being a slave. But what did this mean in practical terms? Essentially, a serf was a peasant who was bound to the land on which they worked. They were obligated to work said land on behalf of the landowner, and were directly compensated only in the form of food, shelter, and other such necessities. Serfdom had been largely abolished throughout the rest of Europe, as the prevailing material conditions following the Black Death made the practice impractical and uneconomical. In Eastern Europe, in particularly Russia, the institution of serfdom only grew in prominence over time, and in Russia, serfdom took on a decidedly worse character. In spite of some admittedly very minimal legal protections, 
serfs were essentially considered to be their master's property. They could be brought and sold, just as slaves were in the Americas at the time. Just as in the case of slavery, one could purchase their own way out of serfdom, as had happened in the case of Taras Sevchenko. Not all peasants in the Russian Empire were serfs, but the institution was still rather widespread at the time that it had been abolished. Official numbers are hard to come by, but it has been estimated that peasants, both free and unserved, made up the vast majority of the empire's population, around 80%, whereas serfs made up about 38% of the empire's total population. The importance of the abolition of serfdom to Ukraine cannot be overstated. According to the 1897 All-Russian Census, 90% of Ukrainians were of the peasant class. Prior to the abolition of serfdom, it can be safe to assume, therefore, that serfs made up possibly as much as 45 or 50% of the total Ukrainian population. The abolition of serfdom emancipated a plurality of Ukrainians, and therefore, theoretically, provided the nationalist intelligentsia with a broad, new, free peasant constituency among whom the Ukrainian culture could be proliferated. This brings us to the second reason why the year 1861 is so important to the development of Ukrainian nationalism, that being the founding of the first Ukrainian Chromata. The Chromatas were secret societies that, using the Brotherhood of St. Cyril and Methodius as a model, devoted themselves to spreading national consciousness among the Ukrainian commoners. The Chromatas began to quickly spread throughout the empire, with organizations being founded in cities across Ukraine and even in the Russian imperial capital of St. Petersburg. Russian authorities viewed the quickly growing Ukrainophile movement, as they called themselves, with alarm. Not only because the existence of a separate Ukrainian identity was thought to pose a threat to the Russian state in an abstract sense, but also because the state had come to suspect that the Ukrainians had allied themselves with the Polish nobility in a grand conspiracy against Russia. The truth of the matter was that the Poles had just as little interest in seeing the development of Ukrainian national consciousness as the Russians did. But nevertheless, when the January uprising broke out in Poland in the year 1863, the Ukrainophiles were saddled with at least part of the blame. As a reaction to this, that same year, Russian Minister of Internal Affairs Pyotr Valuev issued what has become known as the Valuev Circular, an official edict prohibiting the publication of educational and religious books in the Ukrainian language. The damage done by the Valuev Circular to the development of the Ukrainian language and culture was rather significant. Per the conditions of the decree, secular, non-educational publications in vernacular Ukrainian were still permitted, but all were subjected to the censor regardless. And, as of 1868, only one Ukrainian language publication was printed that entire year. Valuev's resignation that same year meant that his ruling was now able to be interpreted by individual censors, and these individual censors tended to be far more lenient than Valuev himself had been. By the year 1874, 32 Ukrainian language publications had made it past the censors, as many had been published back in the year 1862, a year before the issuing of the circular. The Hromadas, which had also been effectively forced to disband, began to reemerge throughout the empire. In response to an increasingly bolder Ukrainian national movement, Tsar Alexander II, while on vacation at the German spa town of Bad Ems, signed the Ems Ukaz, or the Ems Edict. The edict, which began with a resolution to, quote, put a stop to the activities of the Ukrainophiles, which are a danger to the state, end quote, not only banned the publication of all works in the Ukrainian language, not just religious or educational ones, but also prohibited the use of Ukrainian on the stage and prohibited the importation of Ukrainian language texts from abroad, among other various provisions. 
The last point about the ban on importation of Ukrainian language texts is particularly important. Just as how the Valuev Circular had been issued under the belief that the Ukrainians had allied themselves with the Poles against the Russians, the impetus for the Ems Edict was a suspicion that the Ukrainians were being aided by the government of Austria, or, as I will henceforth be referring to it, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. This time, however, Russian authorities' suspicions were not entirely unfounded. While it is true that in the future, Austro-Hungarian decision-makers would seek to support the Ukrainian national movement in the hopes of seeing an independent Ukraine that would function as a buffer state between the Russian Empire and their own, at this juncture such a strategy was not very high on their list of priorities. The perceived Austro-Hungarian support of the Ukrainians was less a conscious strategy and more of an effect of the Austro-Hungarians' method of governance, as described previously. The capital of the Austrian crown land of Galicia Lodomeria, Lemberg, or Lviv as it is known in Ukrainian, had developed into a sort of capital of Ukrainian culture. For instance, it was in Lemberg that the first regular publications in the Ukrainian language had been issued, including Pravda in 1867 and Dilo, the first daily Ukrainian language newspaper in 1880. Such publications had a tendency to be smuggled across the border into Russian Ukraine, much to the Russian authorities' chagrin. All was not well within Galicia itself, however. The Austro-Hungarian state had, in the years following the revolutions of 1848, granted many concessions to the ethnic Polish nobility that constituted the ruling class throughout the region. Tensions between the Poles and Ukrainians, who made up the majority population in eastern Galicia, eventually led to the formation of the Russophile movement. The intellectuals of the Russophile movement believed that Vienna's support of the Poles was a betrayal, and so they looked to Russia, the defender of all Slavs, to save them from tyrannical Polish rule and to unite all of Slavdom. Naturally, the Austro-Hungarian government saw the growing Russophile movement as a threat to their national security, and so they sought to support their opponents, the Ukrainophiles. This had the effect of sending Galician Russophiles across the border into Russia, while the repressive measures being enacted by the government there sent many Ukrainophiles into the far more attractive land of Galicia. One such individual of the latter category was one Mikhailo Khrushchevsky, an ethnic Ukrainian born in the Polish city of Holm, who moved to Lemberg at some point during this period. It was at the University of Lemberg where Khrushchevsky took on the title of Professor of Ukrainian History when the position was first created in 1894. Khrushchevsky is truly an interesting character. A historian by trade, Khrushchevsky would find himself caught up in the politics of the incipient Ukrainian state when it began to move to independence following the revolutions in 1917. Khrushchevsky is just as well known for his political career as he is for his scholarly work. His magnum opus, the massive ten-volume series History of Ukraine Rus, traces the history of the modern Ukrainian nation all the way from the Kievan Rus to the Zaporizhian Cossacks to the modern day. A later, abridged version of this work, A History of Ukraine, was first published some eight years after his death in 1934, and the 1970 English translation of this work served as a source for writing the series, but I digress. The result of this back-and-forth policy I just described between the Russians and Austro-Hungarians was a strengthening of the Ukrainophile movement in Galicia and a weakening of it within Russian Ukraine. The repressive measures brought, in by the, brought on by the Ems Edict were clearly becoming a detriment to the interests of the Russian state, and, as of 1880, some reform-minded ministers were considering making changes to the edict's provisions. The assassination of Tsar Alexander II that following year expedited these reforms. In 1881, the new Tsar, Alexander III, 
modified the Ems Edict to allow for the publication of such works as dictionaries and music lyrics to be published in Ukrainian, and for the Ukrainian language to be used on the stage once again. In the face of numerous abortive attempts to achieve politicization, the Ukrainian national movement can be said to have achieved this process by the 1890s. The first Ukrainian political parties were founded, not surprisingly, in Galicia. Although the Ukrainians as a whole had been allowed some degree of representation in the Austro-Hungarian parliament, since that entity was established in 1867, the first explicitly Ukrainian political party with a defined program, registered membership, and a mass following was the Radical Party, founded in Lemberg in October 1890. This Radical Party was the political heir to the legacy of the Radical Movement that had existed in Galicia since the early 1870s, having emerged from the opposition to the more conservative Russophile movement that was also gaining traction among Ukrainians at the time, the radical movement was, as the name suggests, a movement that was more politically radical in character than the mainstream Ukrainophiles. The party was founded by Mikhailo Drachomanov, a socialist theorist hailing from Poltava Oblast in eastern Ukraine. The political program espoused by Drachomanov and his collaborators was avowedly socialist in character, although the radicals' conception of socialism differed from the more western-oriented socialists insofar as the former was beholden to the theories of German thinker Karl Marx, who held that the proletariat was the driving force of revolution. Instead, the radicals' vision of socialism was rooted firmly in the prevailing conditions in Ukraine itself. That is to say, they viewed the rural peasant as the driving force of revolutionary activity. Under the leadership of Drahomanov, the radical party maintained at least a nominally internationalist outlook, taking up the mainstream position among Ukrainian nationalists that advocated federation with Russia. However, following Drahomanov's death, the party adopted a resolution calling for complete and unequivocal independence for Ukraine. This marked the first time that such an idea had been advanced by a political party, but it was a fringe position at the time, and would remain so, even up to the year 1917. The first Ukrainian political party within the Russian Empire would not be founded until a full decade had passed from the founding of the Radical Party in Austria-Hungary. The Revolutionary Ukrainian Party was founded in the year 1900 by a group of university students in the eastern Ukrainian city of Kharkov. The RUP quickly spread out from its city of origin, establishing branches in six different cities across Ukraine and southern Russia. Initially, the RUP was dedicated to achieving, quote, single, unitary, indivisible, free, and independent Ukraine from the Carpathians to the Caucasus, unquote. The extreme nationalism that characterized the party in its first years gave way by the year 1902 to a form of agrarian socialism similar to that espoused by their cousins in the Radical Party in Galicia. In early 1904, a man named Mykola Porsche became the leader of the Revolutionary Ukrainian Party. Under his leadership, the program of the party shifted away from the more nationally-based agrarian socialism to an internationalist variant of socialism, as put forward by the German Social Democratic Labour Party and their 1903 Erfurt program. As such, the party officially took on the orthodox Marxist position, which held that the urban proletariat should be the object of efforts to proliferate class consciousness. Throughout 1904, tensions caused by heated debates over the so-called national question led to the splitting of the party at its second party congress in December 1904. At this time, a large group of orthodox Marxists split off from the revolutionary Ukrainian party to form the Ukrainian Social Democratic Union, also known by the shorthand Spilka which would become an autonomous entity of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, the party from which the Bolshevik and Menshevik parties would later emerge. 
those who remained in the RUP, including future Ukrainian revolutionary leaders Volodymyr Venichenko and Simon Petlura, rechristened themselves as the Ukrainian Social Democratic Workers' Party. As I hope I've illustrated by now, all the major early Ukrainian political parties were at least nominally socialist. The whole episode of the RUP's split illustrates the fundamental divide that would plague Ukrainian revolutionaries for the next three decades or so, the issue of the national question. While nearly all politically conscious Ukrainians were opposed to Tsarist autocracy, they differed in terms of national outlook. We've already seen this dynamic at play when it came to the Ukrainophile versus Russophile debate of the 1870s. Now, the growing popularity of international socialism added an entirely new contour to the debate, Whereas both Ukrainophiles and Russophiles had a tendency to lionize the Ukrainian peasantry, internationalist socialists believed in the revolutionary potential of the urban proletariat. This leads us to take a look at the question of demographics. As I mentioned earlier, about 90% of the Ukrainian population was made up of the peasantry, thus making it logical for any nationally based Ukrainian revolutionary movement to place the onus of taking revolutionary action upon them. However, Marxist theorists had no small amount of debate on the question of if the peasantry truly possessed revolutionary potential. The focus for the Marxists was the urban proletariat, or worker. And while it is true that during this period Ukraine, especially the eastern half of the country, was undergoing a period of industrialization, the urban proletariat still remained a relatively small demographic. The issue here is that any political movement with such an outsized fixation on such a small proportion of the Ukrainian population lacked the broad appeal that was necessary for a successful nationalist movement. Additionally, the population of Ukraine cities was, for the most part, not even ethnically Ukrainian. For instance, the Ukrainian capital of Kiev had a population that was only some 20% Ukrainian. The majority population in Ukraine's industrial urban centers was Russian, Jewish, and Polish predominantly. Each of these groups tended not to gravitate towards Ukrainian-based socialist parties, but to Russian, Jewish, and Polish-based ones instead. I'm sure at this point the listeners have a number of questions so far, the most pressing of which pertaining to the radical left-wing nature of the Ukrainian national movement. There is a persistent and admittedly not entirely unfounded notion in the modern day that nationalism is a fundamentally right-wing phenomenon. It is true that nationalism has a tendency to take on a right-wing character, especially since the advent of fascism. However, it is worth bearing in mind that nationalism, like all other social movements, takes on the character of the specific conditions from which it emerges. Therefore, given the socio-economic conditions prevalent in Ukraine at this time, it stands to reason that the Ukrainian national movement, emerging as it did in opposition to socio-economic as well as national oppression, would necessarily take on a more radical character than similar movements emerging elsewhere in Europe. On January 9, 1905, a procession of some 20,000 workers turned out into the streets of the Russian capital of St. Petersburg for a peaceful demonstration. Their intentions were modest, to present to Tsar Nicholas II a petition which called for, among other things, more stringent labor regulations, the introduction of democratic government institutions, and an end to the disastrous ongoing war with Japan. Led by a priest, Father Grigory Gapon, the procession of the workers to the Tsar's residence at the Winter Palace was orderly, even reverent, with protesters carrying portraits of Tsar Nicholas and singing, God Save the Tsar. And yet, despite the non-violent nature of the demonstration, the soldiers guarding the Winter Palace were ordered to open fire on the crowd as they approached the Tsar's residence. Between 150 and 250 people were killed in the ensuing massacre, an indeterminate number were wounded, and even more were arrested. This event came to be known as Bloody Sunday, 
and it marked the beginning of the Russian Revolution of 1905. For the greater part of the next two years, nearly the whole Russian Empire would be racked with labor strikes, peasant revolts, and military mutinies. In Ukraine, revolutionary action most often took on the form of the second of these three forms just described. During the period between 1905 and 1907, there was a marked uptick of peasant unrest in the countryside, with rebels often articulating nationalist demands, such as the introduction of Ukrainian language in schools. Events in Ukraine, however, remained largely inconsequential when compared to the events which took place in the industrial heartland of Russia proper, or in other peripheral territories such as Poland, Finland, and the Baltics. One notable incident which occurred in Ukraine was the mutiny of the battleship Potemkin, later to be made the subject of a famous 1925 film directed by Sergei Eisenstein. Despite the fact that Ukrainian nationalists were minimally involved in the revolutionary events between 1905 and 1907, they were nevertheless able to benefit from the brief period of relative liberalization that it resulted in. On October 30, 1905, Tsar Nicholas, in a last-ditch effort to re restore order to his empire, reluctantly issued the October Manifesto. The October Manifesto guaranteed limited civil and political rights to the subjects of the Russian Empire. Most of the restrictions regarding the Ukrainian language were lifted. The October Manifesto also promised to create a representative body known as the State Duma, without which, at least theoretically, no new laws could be promulgated. Ukrainian political parties participated in the elections to the First and Second Dumas, where they articulated demands for Ukrainian autonomy, but to little avail. The Tsar would eventually go back on the promises he laid out in the October Manifesto, and the period after the year 1907 saw a resurgence in reactionary politics throughout the empire. The Duma was shuttered, and repressive measures were once again taken against the Ukrainian national movement. Ukrainian politicians were arrested, the ban on the U the ban on Ukrainian language publications returned, and so on and so forth. Therefore, in 1914, on the eve of the First World War, it seemed as though, quote, the monarchy had successfully survived the revolution and adjusted itself to the new economic and political realities. The non-Russian nationalities were taken under control after receiving some concessions, and Russian nationalism itself had created an unprecedented bond between the monarchy and most of its subjects. Popular support for the one indivisible Russian state and the nation was as popular as ever in gaining new ground. End quote. If anything, the outbreak of the Great War in August 1914 initially promised to strengthen the unity of the empire and galvanize its minority populations to fight and die on behalf of the Tsar. All signs pointed to the complete reentrenchment of reaction in the Russian Empire, but as I'm sure most of you are aware, that is certainly not what ended up happening. But this episode has gone on for long enough, and I feel that this is a pretty good place to end things. Be sure to tune in next time, as in the next episode, we will go beyond the First World War, and to begin to cover the revolutionary developments of 1917, hopefully getting all the way up to the Ukrainian Declaration of Independence on January 22nd, 1918. But that is, for us, still quite a ways away. If, in the meantime, you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in this episode's description. Also be sure to check out the show's Patreon page and unofficial eBay store. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.